0: Welcome fellow traveller, you are now listening to the Tent Theology
1: Podcast. Each week we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social
0: and political imagination.
1: On the podcast today is Elizabeth Oldfield. Elizabeth is the director of Theos, the think tank that deals with religion and public life in the UK and beyond. Theos is doing excellent work, do check out fios for some idea of what elizabeth is up to elizabeth is also the host of the sacred a podcast which has gathered an astonishing array of guests to come and speak with her about what they hold sacred if you have a look at the kinds of people she gets you will be pleasantly surprised by who she's able to attract it was quite fun to talk to elizabeth She's someone who I have known here and there before, but never really sat down and talked with to such a great extent. I really love the way that she thinks. She's a theologically trained and sharp mind who has also got a background in media, BBC uh, production work, as well as writing and thinking and speaking. So I think that Elizabeth is basically the perfect person to have as a friend to Tent Theology, and I was very glad to have her on the show. So, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Oldfield in conversation with me, Stephen Backhouse. I hope you enjoy it. So, tell us a bit about being a director of Theos right now. What is Theos for our listeners?
0: Yeah, so Theos is... uh think tank, a uh, religion and society think tank coming from a Christian perspective. Yeah. And a think tank is basically a research organization with an agenda. Like lots of them are very specifically policy focused but there's a broader mm. ecosystem of think tanks just, that just see research as one way of bringing about positive change in the world. And so the positive change that we want to see is um, a better story in the sense of more positive where possible. Yes. but also more accurate about the role that faith does play, can play, should play in healthy and flourishing societies. So and we use research story. and events and media to do that.
1: Okay. Um, but what's, what was wrong with the old story? Okay, we're all about uh, renewing the social and political <laughs> imagination here. So I love it that you said you're going to tell a better story. So what, what's the old story that needs replacing?
0: I think that... It really depends who you talk to. But my sense is, and I used to work at the BBC, and so there's a particular uh, group of the much maligned metropolitan intelligentsia um, that influence our cultural stories, right? And, yeah. and, uh, and that they trickle down more broadly. Yeah. So in some ways, I don't think it's changed in a century. Religion in general, Christianity, well, Christianity in particular, is seen as either kind of a malign power grab yeah or dusty ineffectual irrelevant yeah um, and religion more generally strange irrational threatening tribal yeah um, generally a problem to be solved rather than a gift or don't like the uh, economistic language of an asset but whatever right. the less financial way of talking about an asset, you know, so, something that society should be glad of. And yeah.
1: A cultural the... artifact.
0: Yeah. yeah, I think I like, the, like the, the language of gift. You know, it, yeah. I talk about faith as a gift, not a threat. Right. Now, I it's so funny
1: because I grew up thinking like, oh, the liberal media is out to get us and the secular liberalists and they have this view Christianity is old and outdated or that it's angry and violent. But now I'm like, it is kind of old and outdated and it is kind of angry and violent like a lot of these so-called secular liberal media people actually got it pretty right
0: didn't they we should probably be talking about christianities right whenever you try and use these great conceptual concepts my colleague nick spence often says you know when you use the word religion or faith and it can encompass the quakers and isis you've got something that is not massively helpful for its yeah. explanatory power. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's what I mean by saying um, more positive where possible, yeah, but more right. accurate. Because yeah. sometimes the most important thing that we can say is is to point to dysfunction and to you know pain and to damage that mm-hmm. these stories and these communities of faith have. Um, either consciously or unconsciously inflicted on those yeah. around us. And one of the ways that we restore trust in our ability to actually be of service for the common good is to have that ability to self-reflect and to tell the truth rather than this thing that all in groups do, you know, this instinct to um, polish ourselves up right. and to hide the things about ourselves that we're most ashamed of. Yeah. Um, I just think that the church needs to get better at doing that But the public narrative only focuses usually on the failings. Um, And so to have a more accurate, rich, broad, complex picture, you have to be doing both. Is that
1: now in America, they call that public theology. But you don't use that language, do you, public theologians?
0: No, I when I took over the we were called a public theology think tank. And it might be just that. In lots of ways, I'm not a real theologian. I did a master's in theology and the arts at King's, but mainly focused on the arts bit. Okay. Um, so my s- systematic theology is definitely patchy. Um, but, you know, even coming from that master's, I didn't really know what the term public theology meant. And right. those I spoke to, it sounded very Anglican, for one thing, and we were okay. trying to sort of slightly bust yeah. out of that box and broaden things a bit. But I'm mainly interested in speaking to those outside the church. God love the church, you know, yeah right Uh, it's my mother tongue it's my home tribe big fan of jesus but church's institution church's discourse not that interesting so public theology language doesn't work for anyone i mean frankly for most christians but definitely for anyone who is not interested in church and so i've sort of ditched that and i'm really interested in in storytelling often factual but also otherwise about this possibility of big questions of meaning, of community, of existential longings, of all these places in the Venn diagram where people who call themselves religious and people wouldn't actually have right. a huge amount of overlapping interests that's very fruitful.
1: And they wouldn't normally perhaps know it if they were always sticking to their to their camps. Is this the is this the origin of The Sacred, the podcast that you I was gonna say you were the host of you are still the host, but it's
0: oh, definitely still it. the host. We're just having we're having a little um, Having a little rest to recover from 2020. Uh, um, tell us
1: about the sacred. I find this a really beautiful, fascinating thing.
0: Oh. Uh, tell thanks. us about the
1: genesis of it. I just, it's like when when you started doing it, I was like, oh crap, that's exactly what I wanted to do.
0: <laughs> oh, thanks, so, Stephen. Well, that okay. means a lot coming yeah. from you. So yes, I I've often I've often had a bee in my bonnet about tribalism. I think it's one of the things. So one of my jobs at the BBC was a researcher on the Moral Maze, which had great things about it and hard things about it but in the nature of it is I was talking to people from radically different tribes every day so when you're trying to cast a program Hmm. bringing in different I would literally go from talking to a libertarian to talking to a communist to talking to Mm -hmm. and so learn a lot of skills in how to connect across the tribes and how to see the sort of human being behind Mm -hmm. the proposed box in which they fit in my like casting research document and have often felt frustrated by the tribes within the church the tribes within Westminster the tribes within our nation and this sense of how easily our guard goes up when we perceive someone Hmm. a little bit different from us someone who disagrees with us someone Mm -hmm. who we're not comfortable with Mm -hmm. just feels to me like a very very fundamental fact of human existence that is like Tripping us up in spectacular ways repeatedly down the centuries. Does this happen across
1: and so, all fa- factions? Like, do, does everybody put their guard up, or have you noticed that some groups tend to be more guarded than others?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think everyone does. I think yeah. everyone tells self-legitimizing stories. Okay. I think when you move between tribes, you often are like, "Oh, I've left this terrible, closed tribe. Aren't they terrible?" Okay. And in, in whenever you find a post-tribe. Yes, We are post-liberal, we're post-modern, yes. Yes. we're post-evangelical, whatever yeah. it is, yeah. as if we've left this terrible tribe and we're now yeah. out free in the wilderness. But those post-tribes are just as, Yeah, I and you know, I just put myself in some of those and, and, and think there's goodness in both the pre-post and the post-post. Yeah, <laughs> um, right. So that's not to kind of do down any particular tribe, but yes, I think that. And it's so it's always been, and I think it's. I'm interested in the peacemaking tradition in Christianity. I'm interested in what does it actually mean to love our enemies? What does it actually mean to turn the other cheek? What does it actually, like how Mm. the hell did the church do this thing of spreading across the tribes, of like literally exploding across languages, of bringing together? How did that happen given what we know about our own tendencies? And so... It was launched um, post. So I was on maternity leave when Trump was elected and the Brexit vote happened. Right. And then I came back and I was like, "What? What has occurred?"
1: I'm going to bring a baby into this world. (laughs) This
0: world. (laughs) Hello, everyone. Um, Everyone is very, very angry with everyone else. (laughs) Um, Yeah. uh, So it was really a very like tentative, experimental. And if I go back and listen to those first episodes, I'm like, "Wow." we were really making it up like sound quality is terrible but it's just wanting to wanting to to model a way of having conversations that doesn't go into I'm looking for where you're wrong or deliberately tries to be curious and vulnerable and open to a very wide range of views and really listen to everyone with respect, which is obviously harder in some cases than others, depending on right. how strongly I disagree with them. Right, right. Yeah, that's the journey we've got, we've gone on, really. And this concept of the sacred is, is about digging deeper than just how you happen to vote for something or yeah. where you stand on X totemic issue to show how those deep values might shape us.
1: But the word, even the word sacred, though, I mean, that's such a... Have you found resistance to that word? Or have you found people not wanting to even admit that there is something in their life that they find sacred?
0: Oh, lots of people, yeah. Particularly those who are self-described non-religious. Right. And I have to be very careful to say, I'm handing it to you to do with what you will. Yeah, right. Um, and I like it because of that, because it is sort of religious, but I wrote a piece on it recently and was doing a bit of, um, a bit of sort of reading around it. And it, it has quite a lot of, history as an attempt to describe things that are very deep. So Durkheim is the key person who, and he was a not not religious himself, early sociologist, you know, trying to say, and particularly from a sort of anthropological sociological thing, our sacred values are the things around which we cluster that draw us together. So it relates to this tribalism thing, but I like the word. I like that it's hefty. It's not part of normal small talk. And yeah. so it shifts you into a different kind of... I mean, the word itself
1: is the thing.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: It puts you yeah. in that mode.
0: Yeah, of, and it's, of... it's, a, it's a way of asking quite a private thing about someone that some people are more you know, more or less comfortable with engaging with. It's funny, there's, like, there's loads of prof- journalists, actors, artists. They've all done loads of self-reflection. It's really comfortable for them. They know what they're doing. Mm. Mm. Politicians, academics, wonkish, left-brained people just like it's just, you can see the short circuiting ha- happening that like does not compute <laughs>
1: um. i i mean i am thinking i mean you uh, i was listening this morning um to to mark vernon's episode oh right and uh, i think it's so funny because i once met him years ago and at a little function a theos function and i met him and i accidentally put my foot in it and i just i always feel embarrassed you know those thought on the stairs right and I, I did that to Mark Vernon and so if he ever listens to this I'm so sorry Mark you don't know who I am but I just feel so embarrassed that I I made some dumb comment about I don't even know what I'm not even going to say what it was but so I thought I got to listen to Mark Vernon speak because he's written a book about Owen Barfield and and how imagination is so important and I heard you talking to him and I thought like, and you asked him like what is sacred and I just right away thought I don't even know if I could answer that question because somebody like Mark is, was a priest, is no longer a priest, doesn't want to identify with the forms of life that he was brought up in, and I was like, I think for me that word is hard to answer because it, what, how do you answer that question when people inevitably push it back to you?
0: So I will, I will tell you, I'm not going to fully dodge the question, but I think that feeling in you is completely is completely normal, and I don't ask it expecting people to know. Yeah. Right like Lois Lee, who is a socios- sociologist of non-religion, who's, who uses, the f- uses that frame when she's talking to non-religious people,
1: hmm.
0: said she had no idea what she herself held yeah. sacred, even yeah. though she'd asked it to loads, and loads of those people. Yeah. But also said there is a sense, at least in Durkheim's sense, that you only know what's sacred when it's transgressed. Yes, yes. And it's like bleh, that yeah. thing that just f- makes you feel yeah. like something is deeply wrong here. Yes, right. And so, yeah. it's an interesting intellectual exercise, and it gets people into a different kind of mode. Out of the like, either I'm doing like a PR blurb for my book straight off, or I'm yeah right. Do I'm I'm here to put my best face forward and give you my best <laughs> arguments. Like, it's I almost ask it because it's hard, because yeah. it people don't really know, because I'm looking for a more pondering type positioning. Yeah, I think because I get that ick reaction most commonly, mine is about relationships and about human encounter. Mm. And I always had that. And it's only actually when I started at Theos and my political theology became more grounded and I understood a kind of personalism, you know, the the power of healthy relationships in evangelical political theology, Catholic social thought, Anglican political theology. I was able to sort of put ideas under it, Mm -hmm. but I find when, if, like, for example, I find like, straight business relationships very difficult. Right. I don't really know what that means. And you're a person, I'm a person, we're right. in a relationship. Right. It's really right. important that that's a relationship of trust, that the power balance is healthy, yeah. Yeah. that I treat you with dignity, you treat me with dignity. And ditto, like in teams and hmm. in friendships, those are the things that I spend the most time thinking about. I yeah. think that's one of the things at least. So when
1: those are transgressed or taken for granted, that's when you feel that something sacred yeah. has been stepped on.
0: When someone is treated as a means to an end or a relationship is treated to as a means to an end, that feels yeah. very deeply wrong for me.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, which it makes it difficult to lead sometimes, frankly, like this is not a great sacred value for a CEO. It's like... Yeah, right. <laughs> your job is
1: uh, to be transactional and <laughs> manage yeah. human relations. Well, it's not,
0: is it? And it shouldn't be. Like, we're a Christian know, think tank, it's okay know, that we're trying to work this stuff out, but yeah. ultimately we live in a world where relationships are often transactional yeah. and trying to model something different is sometimes exhausting yeah. and bruising, I but also brilliant.
1: I want to talk a little bit more about Theos, actually, and your journey to it, because how did you get into it? Where, where did, You came from a media background, is that right?
0: I did English and history at university and a huge slab of drama on the side. So I was directing a lot of plays. Okay. And always did drama through my teenage years and have always had this, my sort of happy place is stories. Right. And this is, you know, this is the language of a particular tribe. And some of your listeners will be familiar with it in some way. But certainly at that stage in my life, and sometimes now, I I would describe what happened as, feeling like God spoke to me very clearly about going into the media. Yeah. And then went straight from my degree into a uh, work experience placement at Woman's Hour on Radio 4. And Who then was from the there... Host, in- then, at the time? That was Jenny Murray Jenny, and yeah, okay. Martha Carney. Yeah, brilliant. Martha okay. Carney is lovely. Um, and, uh, and straight from there into Radio Drama. Okay. And so I was like seeing a lot of plays. But the thread has always been... What are the stories that a culture is telling about itself? How does that frame how we see ourselves and each other and also frame our capacity to think about God, to Mm -hmm. be open to the possibility of divine love? Mm -hmm. And so I just sort of pulled on that thread really, thinking maybe if I can make good radio programs or good television programs, Mm. that will be a little contribution towards making these stories a bit healthier, a bit more humane.
1: Was the BBC that, an environment for that? Did, did it have a space for that, those kind of uh, stories or that kind of outlook?
0: Yes, in the sense that it's full of amazing people. Yeah. Like, I, it was a dream to work at BBC, and in lots of ways it wasn't disappointing at all. There were loads of brilliant, 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 thoughtful people with similar vocational mm-hmm. callings, if they wouldn't frame it in quite such Christian terms, most of them. But it's also very much in the market. And so you need to be audience led. The, the thing that eventually pushed me out was the sense that you, you can only make a program if there's something, if there's a news hook, right. if there's a reason, if there's an anniversary, if there's right, right. someone's got a new book out. Yeah. Or if you're basically a big enough dog, you know, if you're Adam Curtis or whatever.
1: Then you can make whatever you feel like making, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I'm not an auteur. <laughs> Um, and just didn't quite could have just climbed the rungs of being a better and better producer and made some beautiful programs but making radio in and of itself wasn't my key motivation so began to look around for what else I could do studied theology and the arts at King's and Mm -hmm. um, thinking a lot about beauty and an apologetic of beauty Mm -hmm. and then this job at Theos came up and I thought that's an organization trying to be Thoughtful, sane, intelligent, mm-hmm. and Christian mm-hmm. in public conversations, and maybe I could go be some use there. And you did, and I so hope so. Now, that
1: was how
0: many years ago was that that you joined? Nine years ago, right? Almost right?
1: a decade ago, and now, yeah. like, I'm just thinking it's just a different world 10 years ago, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, because uh.
1: I wrote a, a piece for Theos, I wrote one of the Theos's first ever reports and it was on nationalism, it was on Christian nationalism and national identity and, and it was all kind of theoretical at the time.
0: Mm. Yeah it's Ten not now. Later. <laughs> it's not
1: now right and, and it's like where think tankery becomes current events which is kind of an interesting position to be in. Yeah. And what kind of changes have you seen as a, as a, okay you're not a public theologian, as a, as a what do you call yourself, <laughs> at a party, what do we call you, Elizabeth? I don't know what to call you. Christian with some kind of public voice. Okay, so in the last ten years, what has what has changed in yeah, your so, outlook as a Christian with a public voice?
0: So at the point I came in, it was the the sort of dying thrashing of new atheism for a few years, maybe, and it had been very adversarial, very toxic, very sense of like us and them. Mm-hmm. And Theos was trying to try navigate that by being a bit more provocative by, you know, we donated to the atheist bus campaign to say like, great, ask the question, why not? Right. To not just punch back, you know, those, I just think those We so easy fall into the trap of getting yes. into defensive attack mode and then you spiral and there's no yes. productive. But we did spend quite a lot of time in the early days just trying to be like, okay, what are the key arguments? How can we challenge those? How can we do some stuff around science and religion that shows that these two things aren't anathema, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, As things have gone on i feel like the heat has really gone out of that partly because of dawkins own personal public implosion yeah and partly because the world's just got bigger fish to fry in some ways right we've had major financial crash there's a there's a sense in which the sort of retreat of the the austerity years have have led people with a much stronger sense of both the challenge that you get when civil society shrinks when Mm -hmm mediating local faithful institutions like faith organizations, although not solely faith organizations, retreat. I think you've got a generation coming through who are just much less formed by that very modernist 20th century upward progress towards the future, away from superstition into reason. Yeah. Yeah. And And people are aware
1: that you can win an argument and still be wrong. So they're not like swayed by the idea of like, yeah, you're clever, you can beat me in an argument, but it yeah. still feels right what I'm doing or it's still, I still think I'm right, so.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you know, I just, I don't buy this like from modernism into post-modernism thing. I think both of these things are happening all the time and they're exactly. difficult terms anyway. But what you've got is a generation that are both have a particular concern about justice, which they will see some things in, you know, Orthodox Christianity that is that are very repellent for them, particularly some some of the positions on sex and gender but also some things that are very powerful for them because there is also a very huge thread around justice and the poor right. and God's concern for those on the margins. So I think what, I'm, what, what we have seen is there's still a particular kind of white middle-aged m- male public figure. And I don't mean that in a like, I don't mean to be too groupy hey, about it. watch it,
1: watch it, Elizabeth. Yeah. It's getting
0: personal. Yeah. <laughs> I, t- I don't use that. I try not to I use that know. kind of group language. But that there is a. It it tends to be. Yeah, of course. Still very influential white male journalists are exactly. still very much in a Dawkinsy yeah. mode and still have lots of influence. So there's that going on still. But underneath that, there's I think huge amount more spiritual openness, a search for meaning, identity, belonging, community. Mm. And, and still nerves about dogma. And so we're trying to navigate that really and do good research, which demonstrates the richness of these ideas, of this tradition for, mm-hmm. for now mm-hmm. and says, actually, the church is still doing a huge amount of really good work. Mm-hmm. Let's just balance some of this terrible stuff and just pr- create places like the sacred and elsewhere where those questions of meaning are allowed
1: they're not just fodder for some kind of argument, some sort of philosophical football match, where you're just
0: kicking no, these ideas they're or... in order to, yeah, they're in order to build relationships. Yeah. Like at no point do I say like you're wrong for X, Y, and Z reason. Right. Normally, I get to the end and say do you want to come for dinner. Like. Yeah. And then there's a friendship. I just basically think friendship changes the world, and we don't have enough intra-tribe friendships. And it's not very good to write a whole organizational strategy based on friendship, but I'm giving it a good go.
1: how does that work in um i'm thinking how adversarial uh news can be or media can be or uh, we think of the febrile anti-news sentiment amongst conservatives i mean the bbc gets attacked all the time for being liberal bias and all this and look at the Trumpists. conservative
0: bias the communists that i follow also hate the bbc
1: right you know and so
0: how do you
1: when you're a part of these institutions, you're, you've been, you're, your name is connected to institutions like the church mm. and the BBC. Um, yeah. Where does friendship, how does friendship work when people are so convinced that the institutions that you're a part of hate them and, and are set out to, to undercut them at every turn?
0: I think you just prove that you're not personally. Like- Is there such a thing as institutional bias? Is there a liberal
1: bias or a conservative bias in the BBC?
0: I haven't worked there for 10 years, so I actually don't feel qualified to answer that. I think there is definitely... I do believe that we're formed. We're formed by our peer networks. We're formed by the people that we trust and respect. We're formed by the stories that we tell. That's why I'm interested in our whole thing. And industries are self-selecting, right? If you do a personality test on people who work at BBC versus people who work in hedge funds versus people who are social workers, you'll get particular groups clustering. And then we go self-reinforcing because the people that we see regularly, their views become the norm and views that become the norm are easier to hold because there's less cognitive dissonance of feeling like you have Mm. a social risk of holding that view. So we know all this from research that, yes, of course, institutions have particular cultures. And the BBC is... An institution and will have a particular culture as will the church. Yeah. I do think that from what I can tell, it's working really bloody hard yeah. um, to guard against that and to give people a sense of self-awareness.
1: Yeah.
0: There's definitely, there's definitely not that many pe- actively religious people in a lot of our mainstream institutions. And that's, there is a kind of progressive secular center of gravity mm-hmm. in our institutions but I don't think it's a kind of sinister on plot. And I think it's all the more reason why Christians or conservatives or people with different kind of views Mm -hmm. need to not just go, ah, look at these terrible people, but need to be actively working to do good work and to join institutions and to serve and to bring their different voices and to have a very thick skin and very high emotional intelligence to be in places where they don't feel like the norm. And it all comes back to tribalism (laughs) because we find it hard to be in tribes where we yeah. don't feel mainstream, and more and more like only people who know how to do that can change the world.
1: <laughs> so when you're talking to like a client, like a Theos client, for example, and, and there'll probably yeah. be some Christian group for some reason, often, right? There'll be sort of self um, or denominationally active group.
0: Yeah, if when we're doing consultancy research, it's, that's quite a small part of our work now, but we still do do some.
1: Or when you're, when you're speaking to a... a self-professed christian audience what kind of yeah. stuff do you put in place or what, what kind of tools do we have to help people do that work of like self-awareness of yeah cognitive dissonance or <laughs> confirmation bias and all these things you've talked about which are so good at projecting out on other people
0: yeah but it's all from think
1: about it for themselves
0: so i think it's all so the, the, the wiggly way I got to all of this was through parenting, actually. I read a bunch of parenting books about child development and the way fight or flight works. And, okay, wizard uh, lizard brains. Uh, yeah, and how, how difficult it is to learn or to think deeply or right. at all, really, yeah. when we feel under threat. And I do think there is a large amount of the population that constantly feels slightly under threat now because of the information that we're environment that we're in because of the sense that the other guys are winning. Yeah. Hmm. I then went back to the new Testament and realized that it's all there. The fact that we know more about the psychological mechanisms doesn't mean that Jesus was not incredibly insightful and radical in terms of how people work. And when he says to people, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek, he is saying, resist your fight or flight. Like you, when someone hits you on the cheek, you are tempted to hit them back, i.e. fight, or run away, i.e. flight. Mm. Don't do that, stand there. Like maintain eye contact, maintain the relationship. Yeah. Just, yeah. Like plant your feet. Yeah, right. Do not, do not escalate, do not deescalate. Stay in the tension yeah. of that yeah. moment. Like love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Yeah. Go and like actively, intentionally cross these borders, and be with whoever the biggest outcast in the room is like Jesus did, whether it's because they are low status or they're like maligned and high status and you know, whoever, you know, whatever the particular bugbear is at the moment. And so I find it very easy to talk to Christian audiences about this because I think the Christian peacebuilding tradition is the best possible place to find this. Yeah. It's when I'm with a secular audience that I have to kind of translate a bit and then go, oh, by the way, this was all in the Gospels 2,000 years ago.
1: How do you translate it? How do you talk? To, if, if, if the uh, British Humanist Association asked you to talk about conflict resolution, how would you do it?
0: I mean, frankly, I, with them, I would go straight for scripture because of me laugh. I do think this mix really helps that people think of scripture as a rule book, but actually it is an incredible, it's both that, yes, but or, and is an incredible, insightful source of wisdom for how human beings work and what wisdom looks like now.
1: So how would you translate conflict resolution if you were asked by the British Humanist Society to come and give a talk? How would you translate some of this stuff?
0: Yeah, I probably would use some scripture with them because I like being a little bit provocative. Um, but I also think, you know, the Humanist Association, lots of people who would call themselves spiritually, not religious, non-religious people more generally our society at at large are hungry for wisdom like we know we have we know that the like blueprint of make enough money get some job security like slowly accumulate possessions until you feel like your existential longing for approval is sated Mm. is frankly bullshit like Mm. almost everyone who has either failed to climb that ladder or has climbed that ladder would acknowledge that it doesn't do what it says on the tin, that there's like a necessary but not sufficient thing of Mm. the consumer dream. And I think more and more that's true, like much more than for our parents' generations who probably had the memory of the war and the precariousness more strongly and therefore just security probably did feel more like enough. But for us, it's either out of reach for a younger generation because of the way that economic shifts have happened Mm Or if we can reach it, we know it's, it's made our parents' generation not particularly satisfied. I would go at it from that angle of like, what does a good life look like? What does satisfaction look like? What are healthy communities? How do we make relationships that last? How do we increase our tolerance of discomfort? Because this constant running away from the discomfort of difference or disagreement or big feelings or whisper it like the possibility of the existence of god like all of that is not serving us well it's keeping us infantile there is this enormous source of wisdom and if you want to buy into the metaphysics great but if you don't you can still find extraordinary power in these texts
1: do you use the name of jesus a lot or do you do you try and avoid bringing jesus up in these conversations
0: yeah, I actually don't find Jesus is the problem most people feel generally warm towards Jesus okay. even if they don't believe he was the son of God it's, it's the G-bomb, it's God that is oh, the, okay. the thing that sends people into I sometimes you phrase like, it's, it's a bit like an emotional firestorm I feel quite a heavy duty of care for people because often they want to believe but don't know how Okay. Or they have believed and have lost it, and therefore there's like
1: baggage. It's been a big part of
0: yeah. Yeah, or or now some the, the people coming through who have such a kind of um, what's the Charles Taylor phrase, like a imminent frame, okay. such so, such a kind of closed universe, it just bounces right off them. Right. Oh, okay. Jesus, I I'm like that's a much better starting point.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but isn't that kind of useful anyway? Isn't that the way it should be?
0: Yeah, I mean, God is not a proper noun, right? Like, it's actually a word that we should probably use quite carefully and, and Jesus is a, pro- is a name yeah. <laughs> and a story and but how we can do you sort do it of zoom out like, for that?
1: The fact that our culture is so oversaturated, it has been so Christianized that Christianity is like the culture. We were talking earlier about, it is like the cultural artifact. It did create Western civilization. It just did.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so there's so much baggage or so much assumptions so like how do you recreate this is kierkegaard's point right that he said in an age where in the new testament era to say the name of to say you were a christian was to say something strange and radical now to get that same result you have to say you're not a christian which is why he said he wasn't a christian even though he was clearly a follower of the way of jesus so like do you i mean how do you find that about uh, do you find that there's a pressure as a public Christian to use Christian language from the home team?
0: I mean, I try and tune time? out the home team in the, not, I have, you know, we want to be accountable. I have a lot of wise Christians that I trust their judgment of, but this general sense of like playing to the gallery, I try and avoid Yeah, right. because my calling is not to Christians. <laughs> like yeah, I right. think that thing that I'm most fruitful in doing is crossing this divide and being a Christian that non-Christians can like trust or make sense of or feel some affinity with. Mm -hmm. And so yes, there are quite a lot of Christians that think I'm not a real Christian because they don't see me like ticking the boxes in public. Yeah. yeah. And that could be really, really painful at different points. But and is this particular calling is lonely, but then so is lots of people's and you know, take up your cross, crack on. I find that Vern Williams talks about the task of, I don't know if he calls it witness or mission or evangelization now, mm-hmm. is convincing people that they don't already know yes. what you're talking about. Yeah, right. But yeah, that's <laughs> that—that's the challenge of right. making it weird again. Actually, I found the most powerful thing with this is talking about speaking in tongues and uh-huh. like my charismatic conversion, because yeah. actually for... an a bunch of people who are very interested in ecstatic experiences often spend a lot of time on wellness blogs uh, for a particular generation or the sort of male slanted equivalent like basically getting out of your head on the holy spirit is weird enough and not doesn't sound like the vicar of dibley that that's a way in and it makes it weird for them and is helpfully something that i'm you know big on
1: so you lead with that you say hi i'm elizabeth i'm a director of theos and i speak in tongues (laughs)
0: <laughs> not, not always it, but i did it at the rsa we did a big project on spirituality yeah. where there was like you know social workers and psychologists and um i met pippa evans from the sunday assembly he's now a good friend yeah and me and mark vernon and various other people philosophers and it i could sense this like we're all being very like analytical in person we're bringing our expertise
1: yeah, right. Putting
0: it in the pot, and I was like, "We're talking about spirituality. Like, frankly, if we don't get more personal, this is going nowhere." Yeah. And so I was like, "So I just started talking about speaking in tongues, and it, it was, it completely changed the atmosphere." Yeah. Because then it put it back into this much less safe but much more fruitful conversation of this is real people's lives and real people's deep existential longings, including ours. Yeah. Let's just put that on the table.
1: <laughs> yeah. Where is the place for the mystical? in our public life because it's so it's so much a part of our lives we have these transcendent experiences and synchronicities and coincidences and answers to prayer and worship experiences do you see any place there's a good home for that right now is there any are you noticing any good places that are able to hold that stuff
0: so there's a i have a friend called jules evans who wrote a book called the art of losing control Mm -hmm. where he went and um basically experimented with all these different things including uh, going on an alpha holy spirit weekend Mm -hmm. um but then ayahuasca and other kind of ways of basically getting ourselves out of our rational brain i do think there is a huge hunger for it and you see it in the big push towards mindfulness and this sense of disillusionment with thinking our way to a fulfilling life but i think it mainly gets challenged challenged through the arts and through big festivals and all the things frankly that no one's been able to do for a year and so I think there's a huge like built-up hunger to have these collective ecstatic experiences part of them you know every so often I'm like I text a friend I'm like do you want to come to church you get to sing with people when we were allowed and it was done safely I should say very carefully Yeah.
1: yeah we're missing that element of being able to just get be a part of something bigger than just yourself yeah Yeah. which is a transcendent experience yeah
0: yeah it's accelerated all 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 of the most not all of them a lot of the most unhelpful trends in our culture i think this year but what i hope is it therefore will accelerate a swing back to away from very atomized individualized screen-based lives
1: she says staring into a zoom (laughs) yeah how do we do how do you nourish your spiritual life in the age of the zoom
0: um I turn everything off for twenty-four hours at the weekend. Yeah. I've had, so we've just moved into a community house, and I had to get my housemate to hide my phone for the first few weekends because yeah. like, there's always a good reason. Someone I need to text, like a quick email that needs to be sent. Yeah. You know, all the basic stuff about really good boundaries, you, moving a body, getting outside. I do think, you know, I've never felt more grateful to be pursuing an adventure of living more in community than during lockdown. <laughs> I think there is a rising hunger for that. And I hope that the church will be at the vanguard of rediscovering its tradition of not just living in nuclear families.
1: I know, right? It's like, you not it's so funny. You meet these sort of evangelical Christians who've, who've grown tired of their shallow culture and they've experienced all sorts of other weird and wonderful stuff. And you look at them going, you do know that like Christianity invented this stuff, right? <laughs> Communal living and, or maybe yeah. not invented, but like it's a huge and rich part." But- of of our tradition yeah. mystical experiences yeah. and group living yes yeah. yeah yeah
0: building utopia i mean i think you're know, that's that's the way that we connect not in a like well we got there first no but in a oh wow that's a really great question by the way here's yeah. some resource like yeah right. here's some centuries of thinking yeah i spoke yeah. to a, a guy called casper to who's become a friend who literally has been on this journey from like properly atheist climate campaigner to accidentally ending up in harvard divinity school and now like he talks about realizing that all of the treasures were in divinity school he's like the leadership school doesn't have it the policy, public policy school doesn't have it but divinity school has all of the deepest wisdom and the best tools for how human beings actually work right you know small groups intentional study concentrative practices communal singing, ritual, like right. transcendent experiences, peer reinforcement, like all of these things that behavioral psychology have been like, oh, these, these things seem to work. It's like, yeah, just go ask the Dominicans. And that, can you you know, have I'm any fascinated of that. by those moments.
1: But can you have any of that if you don't also buy the, the Trinity and the resurrection and the virgin birth though? Isn't that the big pill that a lot of people just like
0: ongoing conversation with him and a lot of others i'm like by all means like take this wisdom and this treasure like make it fruitful do good in the world i think that yeah, all right. good in the world is of god like i'm very yeah. much like
1: yeah. wherever
0: there is good god is at work
1: yeah
0: and the whole point of the cross is that we can't sustain these things on our own <laughs> like yeah. we need outside help i am not arrogant enough to think that if i just get the right formula or the right system or the right morning routine yeah. I can fix the hole in my heart. I think that we're designed for God and for love. And that's where we, f- that's home. And I will keep just every so sort often mentioning that bit in case you might want to come check it out. But meanwhile, I'm really happy for you to like rip off some rituals.
1: Uh, Elizabeth Oldfield, this sounds like a really good, and this is a much better way to talk about yourself than just a, as a public theologian. Although I admit that what you've just said would be very hard to put on a business card.
0: Yeah. How do you sum it up? Tell me how, how you, do you sum it, up? it <laughs> up.
1: Come and come and enjoy the fruits of a loving, transcendental, mystical engagement with me, which encompasses all politics, history, art, media, and philosophy. <laughs> and yes. Yeah, I think the that might
0: be card. an overclaim, there, Stephen.
1: <laughs> really. Come yeah,
0: and have yeah. a nice chat.
1: Uh, before we go. Uh, where can we direct listeners to which which sacred conversations would you want newcomers to start with? I think if listeners went to your to the sacred podcast, they'd see a lot of names that they recommend. A lot of names, yeah. Uh, and some of whom are actually household names. Uh, yeah. Which ones would you recommend people move to if, as a start?
0: Um, I think that It depends where they're coming from. If they're from a non-religiously or that's their sort of world, a bit more wonkish, political, I'd start with Matthew Taylor, who's from kind of atheist royalty but has gone on a really interesting journey about what role faith might play and is very self-reflective, much more than I expected. Um, Sally Phillips is amazing on disability. Mm -hmm. Rachel Clark, who I spoke to most recently, is a palliative care doctor who tried to be a Christian for a long time and couldn't make it square but it's incredibly thoughtful and it's very beautiful talking about covid wards so if you want something a bit more contemporary start with her
1: thank you so much I've really enjoyed talking with you and i'm I'm glad that we know ne- our paths never crossed we were never colleagues at theos but uh, perhaps we can do something together so someday soon when they lift the lid off us maybe I'll see you at some function eventually
0: <laughs> it's very nice for our paths to cross again today
1: but
0: until then, go well, and thank you so much. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.10theology.com. Thank you for joining us, and God bless everyone.